0: Hello and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah.
1: And I'm Ben.
0: Thanks for listening to us today. Uh, Especially because Ben and I are both sick.
1: I feel like you're sort of just getting over it.
0: And then I infected you, and you're just getting into it.
1: Yeah, so our voices are maybe going to both have some interesting audio qualities.
0: So besides Sick, uh, I think we're doing pretty good. Yeah,
1: I've got my second episode of the radio show I write for, Dark Side Drive, coming out in the next few weeks. A live episode that I'll be directing.
0: Live on radio. Yeah. Super cool. What are we watching today, Ben?
1: Today we are watching... The Invisible Man from
0: 1933.
1: Ooh! I know this is this is one of your favorites. You really like this one,
0: Claude Rains.
1: <laughs> this is actually our last film in 1933. This film came towards the end of the year in November, and the fact that you know the last uh, American film we had in 1933 was August, and this is episode 43 and our first film in 1933 was episode 37, you can see how many less horror films were being released this year as opposed to 1932. Mm -hmm. Um, As well as the fact that uh, the year kind of started out with a lot of releases that then slowed down in their pace as the year went on. This is our first universal horror film since The Mummy which was episode 35.
0: Oh, wow. So this is Universal's only release this year.
1: Yes, exactly. Um, Versus,
0: like, what, like 10 (laughs) in 32?
1: Maybe not that many, but it's it's something where you can, you know, by looking at the release schedule, really see how producers were backing away, starting to back away from the genre and and the, the backlash from censors and the public was starting to scare people away from it, and there was starting to be a feeling that maybe the trend was over and the the fad had gone cold, as it were. Hmm. Um, But The Invisible Man was a project that Universal had actually been working on for a while. They had sort of scooped up the rights to the novel by H.G. Wells, when they were sort of initially looking for literary sources they could scoop up for possible horror films in the wake of the initial success of Dracula and Frankenstein, because those had been literary classics.
0: It's interesting that they scooped up Invisible Man and continued into making it, despite the backlash to Paramount's Island of Lost Souls, adapted from H.G. Wells' Island of Dr. Moreau.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. It feels like maybe the typical reaction would be like, oh, I guess the public doesn't like H.G. Wells. Never mind that. <laughs> right? Yeah.
0: I, I covered a lot about H.G. Wells' life, especially his early life on episode 36, which is the episode on Island of Lost Souls. So definitely check that out if you want to truly dive into the Wells.
1: Ooh. <laughs>
0: eh? Eh? <laughs> <laughs> As far as what I'm talking about with Wells today, uh, it's going to be pretty focused on what he's up to when he's writing Invisible Man. hmm That being said, Herbert George Wells was born in 1866. He studied biology and other sciences, and you can see how his love and passion of science fiction really reflects his, uh, I guess, real-world knowledge. hmm especially because he's considered the father of science fiction.
1: I feel like that's a debated title, but uh, certainly.
0: You can have multiple fathers. <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned this in the previous episode, but I feel like it's important to bring up again. H. G. Wells was always striving to make the story believable, and he had this rule that your story should only contain one single extraordinary assumption. Everything else following should be realistic.
1: Yeah, everything should sort of proceed logically from one fantastic element, and the rest should sort of be a logical progression.
0: Exactly. And then the other thing that I want to bring back into this episode is uh, the way he would use science almost as a substitute for magic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have these fantasy writers using magic to do all sorts of things. H.G. Uh, Wells used science in the same type of way. hmm His most productive, creative time uh, was when he was in Woking, Surrey. Right. And uh, he moved there in 1895 with his, uh, at the time new, wife, Amy Catherine Robbins. In Woking, he would plan and write several things like War of the Worlds, The Time Machine, The Island of Dr. Moreau, The Wonderful Visit, Wheels of Chance, a lot of
1: things, (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: including The Invisible Man. Okay. So, The Invisible Man was published in 1897, originally in serialized form in a newspaper called Pearson's Weekly. Okay. But it was collected as a novel that same year. Its premise is completely science fiction. Scientist Griffin researches optics, and he invents a way to change the body's refractive index to that of air, so you can pretty much become invisible. Right. Uh, refractive index being like when you have a prism and you put it to light and you can see the light change direction, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. While he succeeds in the experiment on himself, he finds he cannot change himself back. What seems to make The Invisible Man, taken as an example of horror fiction, is Griffin's tendencies towards random violence once societal consequences for that random violence is removed. Right. So in this way, not only is Griffin the sole reason that this is horror, but it's also why The Invisible Man is considered a modern version of this morality tale by Plato called The Ring of Yee-Yees. This ring is mentioned in Book 2 of Plato's Republic, where he postulates whether an intelligent person would be moral if given this ring. Uh, this ring makes you invisible.
1: Gotcha. Let, let
0: me be... <laughs> I forgot to mention that. Yeah. So if you did not have to fear being caught and face consequences, would you still be moral? Is morality just merely a social construction? And if so, if your reputation could be protected, Would your character and morality continue? Right. Listeners might kind of be raising their hands and being like, don't you mean like Jekyll and Hyde? Or in the future, the picture of Dorian Gray?
1: Yeah, similar ideas, right?
0: Yeah. I guess that original question comes from Plato's Republic and um, the reason why Invisible Man is kind of taken as a modern version is because of the invisibility.
1: Yeah, for sure. Although it is interesting that like Picture of Dorian Gray, Jekyll and Hyde, Invisible Man, these are all Victorian English novels that are all exploring these ideas of morality and its intersection with social reputation.
0: Mhm. Mm-hmm.
1: For some strange reason, the idea that people would be assholes if they wouldn't be caught is a common one among Victorian English male writers. <laughs> what a strange coincidence.:
0: Yeah But enough about the Republic. Mm-hmm. Here's the synopsis of the novel of the Invisible Man. So scientist Griffin arrives to an inn in Ipping, West Sussex during a snowstorm, and he already is invisible. He's wearing like a big coat and face covering, so, you know, people can't tell that he's invisible. He's reclusive, irritable, arrogant, that type of thing.
1: He's a jerk.
0: Yeah, he's a jerk. (laughs) In the small town, burglaries start happening as Griffin is running out of money to pay for food and lodging. Hmm. The owner confronts him about, you know, you need to pay your bill, and Griffin reveals his invisibility, laughing in the owner's face, running away after they fight. He meets and plans with a local hoodlum, Thomas Marvel, to steal back his books, which he left at the inn. He does succeed in getting his books back, but Marvel tries to betray Griffin to the police. In response to this, Griffin threatens to kill him and tells Marvel that his invisibility means that no one can stop him. During all of these events, I'm summarizing a lot, Griffin is shot and he takes refuge at a house that turns out to be his old colleague's house, Dr. Kemp. To Dr. Kemp, Griffin reveals who he is, how he devised invisibility using chemicals, and will begin his reign of terror against non-invisible people. Mm. Kemp, rightly so, gets the police involved, and Griffin says, You'll be the first one, Kemp, in my reign of terror. Some double-crossing occurs with notes being stolen, etc., etc., but eventually Kemp... Runs away from Griffin, and there's a growing mob coming from the town. Griffin is seized and killed by this mob, and uh, as he's battered to death, um, his body slowly turns back to being visible once he's died. Hmm. When we were first teasing that we were seeing Invisible Man, you made the joke of, if he's invisible... How can he see? How can he see? Yeah. And you are not the first to kind of make that criticism. Uh, The first was in 1913. (laughs) In uh, a book that's called Physics Can Be Fun (laughs) (laughs) by Russian writer Yakov Perlman.
1: (laughs) Probably Um, Yakov.
0: Yakov Perlman. Um, According to him, Griffin should have been blind because of how human eyes work. Uh, Apparently, Wells tries to lampshade this in uh, a chapter of the novel when Griffin is describing, you know, he tried to do... His first test subject was on a cat. The cat's retinas stayed visible. So it implies that Griffin's retinas are still there to be able to perceive light and everything. (laughs) However, this still would not work because... The retina is what allows light into your eye. It's the cornea that interprets the light signals and everything.
1: Yeah, also, (laughs) like, I think people would notice if, like, just some retinas and corneas were, like, floating around. Like, it might be hard to notice, but, like, you'd notice eventually. (laughs) That's weird.
0: I think it's interesting that Wells tries to lampshade this because of his rule of, like, one fantastic assumption and everything else that follows is, like, realistic, yet he's still trying to be like, no, 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 but this is, like, a thing, you know? (laughs) And probably because of uh, the idea of, like, someone turning invisible would be very difficult to do, there have been no adaptations of The Invisible Man until the 1933 film. It never occurred on... An adaptation never occurred on stage until 1991. Strangely enough, on radio... The earliest adaptation is two thousand one. You'd think that like radio would be the easiest medium to adapt
1: this into. Sure. The problem is that there's nothing impressive about being invisible on radio. I guess. Like in terms of causing like wonder and reaction in your audience on radio, you're just like I'm invisible, and the audience is like, well, I guess. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I can see how that central invisibility would make it hard. Too hard to pull off on stage so it doesn't have that theatrical period between the novel and the movie that a lot of these other Universal films have had.
0: Definitely, yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. The adaptation of Invisible Man had been underway at Universal Studios for some time, but it got held up with numerous problems. Mm. You'd think that the primary problem would be that special effects challenge of making a man who's invisible but a lot of the problems were actually in the script. So initially, the film was supposed to be directed by Robert Flory, who you might remember from <laughs> Murders in the Rue Morgue. But after Flory became sort of persona non grata at Universal, it was then Cyril Gardner who was hired to direct. Meanwhile, the script was going through a ton of different uh, iterations, including attempts by Philip Wiley and even Preston Sturgis at one point. None of these revisions were considered satisfactory, and ultimately production shut down in June of 1932, and the effort was kind of abandoned-slash-put-on-hold. Carl Limley Jr. wanted Boris Karloff for the title role, but disputes broke out over Karloff's wages. Karloff ended up leaving the picture over this dispute, sailing to England to shoot The Ghoul, uh, which we talked about in a previous episode. That actually suited the film's ultimate director just fine, as James Whale didn't think that Karloff was right for the part. Whale hadn't particularly wanted to do another horror film at Universal after The Old Dark House, but his next film, The Kiss Before the Mirror, had done poorly at the box office, despite strong critical acclaim. Uh, So this sort of led Whale to accept the position on The Invisible Man. Whale generally felt that Karloff's fans wouldn't want to see him. Wouldn't want to not see him, actually, really, was his point. Mm. In Whale's mind, there was a certain thing that was expected of Karloff, and that this movie wasn't it. To adapt the script, R.C. Sheriff was brought on. Uh, This is the writer of the play, Journey's End, that Whale had actually made his fame to begin with, directing. Oh. Uh, so Whale had initially become famous directing the play Journey's End. He ended up then directing the movie adaptation of it as well as one of his first films and all, on and on. R.C. Sheriff was the original writer of that. So a writer that Whale felt comfortable working with. Sheriff was given the previous drafts to work from but didn't like any of them and chose to ignore them and asked instead to work directly from a copy of the book. Uh, It turned out no one at Universal had a copy of the book. They just had these previous script drafts. So Sheriff ended up having to go to a local bookstore to buy it, and upon reading it, decided that it would make a fine movie just as it was, and to generally just work directly from the original novel as a source, rather than any of the intervening script uh, attempts. That's bonkers. So to portray the lead, Whale wanted... British theater actor Claude Rains, but Rains had never appeared in a major motion picture before, so Carl Lemley wanted a name actor. In an attempt to placate Whale with a compromise, Lemley offered Colin Clive as a potential invisible man, so Whale agreed to that and then called Clive and told him to turn down the offer when (laughs) Lemley called him. So that Lemley would be forced to go with Whale's choice of Claude Rains. Good. Born William Claude Rains in 1889 in the slums of London, Rains was the son of a stage actor and one of 12 children, all but three of whom would die of malnutrition as infants owing to the family's severe poverty. Wow. Growing up, Rains had a severe Cockney accent and a stutter, and was considered near unintelligible by people who talked to him. He dropped out of school after second grade to get a job as a newsboy in order to bring in extra money to the family. Growing up in the theater with his actor father, Reigns would rise from a callboy to a prompter to stage manager, then an understudy, then small acting parts, and then to large acting parts. When World War I broke out, Rains served in the London Scottish Regiment, rising in the ranks from a private to captain. During a gas attack, Rains suffered injuries to his eyes, which resulted in 90% vision loss in his right eye for the rest of his life.
0: I did not know that.
1: Yeah, wild, right? Wow. After the war, Rains attended the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, where, under the Academy's founder, Sir Herbert Beerbohm Tree...
0: That sounds like a hobbit name.
1: It's, listen, <laughs> that's just what English names sound like. <laughs> Uh, Rains took elocution lessons in order to rid himself of his accent and his stutter, adopting the unique, elegant, mid-Atlantic accent that he would become most known for. By the 1920s, Reigns was a highly in-demand character actor in London, supplementing his income by teaching at the Royal Academy, instructing future stars such as John Gilgood and Charles Lawton, uh, as we mentioned when we talked about Lawton. By 1927, Raines was successful enough to move to New York and continue his career on Broadway with nearly 20 roles to his name on Broadway theater. Raines had played a small supporting role in a British silent film in 1920, but had stayed away from film ever since, making The Invisible Man really his true film debut. And his face would barely even appear in the finished film. <laughs> Whale wanted Reigns for his distinctive, distinguished voice, Mm -hmm. which would be sort of the key element of this character's characterization. The film's cinematographer was Arthur Edison, who had photographed Waterloo Bridge, Frankenstein, and the Old Dark House for Whale previously, but the special photographic effects for the film were handled by a team led by John P. Fulton. To produce the illusion of Reigns' invisibility, a complicated system of wires was used for scenes, for example, where he picks up like a glass or something, uh, and he's invisible. In addition to a system whereby Reigns wore an all-black velvet suit under his clothes, which covered his entire body, and then he was shot against a black background. When that footage was then combined with a background plate, which is to say footage that was shot of the setting of whatever, wherever the scene was taking place, the black portions of the footage with Reigns uh, wouldn't expose because of the way that film works, and thus it would be transparent, allowing Reigns to appear invisible against the background. Cool. Whale packed the rest of the cast with talented notables in order to back up Reigns. Returning from the old dark house is Gloria Stewart. In the intervening period since then, she's appeared in eight films, including Wales' The Kiss Before the Mirror, where she played the young, beautiful murder victim. Among the other notable members of the cast, Henry Travers is perhaps best known for his later role as Clarence in It's a Wonderful Life, while Dudley Diggs had portrayed Casper Gutman in the original 1931 version of The Maltese Falcon, a role more famously realized by Sidney Greenstreet in the 1941 remake. Dwight Fry also makes a small appearance in this film as a reporter, his first film role since The Vampire Bat. Oh. He was having a lot of difficulty by this point due to typecasting and finding more success on stage than in film. One of the most memorable supporting performers in the film may be Una O'Connor, an Irish actress who had made a small career playing servants uh, on stage. But hit it big when Noel Coward wrote a part for her in his 1931 play Cavalcade, which led to her reprising the role in the 1933 film version which went on to win an Academy Award for Best Picture and uh, led to larger film roles for a while for her in a career that lasted until two years before her death in 1959. The Invisible Man was released on November 13th, 1933. The film was a smash hit, hugely successful. Universal's most successful horror film since Frankenstein. Wow. Wow. Um, It received superlative reviews from the New York Times, Variety, The New Yorker. It made several critics year-end 10 best lists. And Whale received a special award at the 1934 Venice Film Festival in recognition of the film's achievements.
0: With the special effects?
1: Yeah, and just like as a a directing achievement. Cool. However, uh, there was one person who didn't like the movie, and that was H.G. Wells. Uh, he did not agree with what he felt were untenable changes that had been made to his novel. Specifically, he said that he could not condone that the brilliant scientist of the novel had been made into a lunatic. This, you may recall, is a similar complaint to the one he had for Island of Lost Souls, where he was angry that they had changed Dr. Moreau to a villain. And it kind of makes me wonder at Wells' personal ethics if these characters that were seen by other people interpreting his work as villains, he just saw as, like, brilliant, rational men? Because, I mean, like, isn't the point of the novel the central character's amorality? Yeah. One of the differences, and we'll get into this, you know, when we do the discussion on on the film, but one of the differences between the novel and the film is that in the novel, Griffin is just amoral. Uh, And he's able to do all these things and get away with them because he's invisible. And in the movie, they introduce a plot element where it's the uh, chemicals that he's taking are making him crazy. Yeah. So, if anything, Griffin in the movie is more sympathetic than novel Griffin. But this is what Wells was angry about. The Griffin character in the novel was a brilliant scientist, and the Griffin character in the movie was a complete lunatic, and he didn't like that. In response to this criticism, (laughs) James Whale replied that he made movies for rational people, and that in the minds of a rational audience, only a lunatic would want to be invisible anyway.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I really do wonder about H.G. Wells, because like, he has this extensive history in the sciences, and working with, um, I mentioned this in the episode on... Island of Lost Souls, but one of his big mentors was like considered the bulldog for Darwinian theories of evolution and Mm -hmm. just like really these strong personalities in science. So these strong personalities in his science fiction are to him, maybe not the heroes, but the protagonists.
1: Sure. You start side eyeing people when you start to realize that when the scientist in the story goes, ah, those fools! Like, oh, wait, when you realize the author empathizes with the feeling of those fools.
0: I wonder what H.G. Wells thought of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Mm. You know? How are we watching this movie?
1: Well, The Invisible Man has been released on DVD and Blu-ray, either on its own or as part of the Universal Legacy Collection with all of its sequels. It's available to rent from the PlayStation and Microsoft video stores. So if you want to stream it, that's the way to go. It is not on our Scream Scene YouTube playlist. Okay. We are watching it as part of the Universal Legacy Collection DVD set.
0: Well, folks, if you want to watch along, Ben's pointed you in the right directions. Uh, you can still check out our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. If you would like to check out other films or hear the other episodes that we've been referring to.
1: You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and then we're going to be right back to discuss The Invisible Man.
0: See you on the other side.
1: Back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching The Invisible Man.
0: From 1933.
1: Oh, I thought you were going to make a crack about how can we have watched him if he's invisible?
0: No, you've already made that joke.
1: I feel like you've made that joke.
0: In any case, someone has already made the joke.
1: You can't repeat jokes. Okay.
0: Hey, want to tell people about the NRA?
1: Okay, yeah. So, um, if you watch... The Invisible Man on the Universal Legacy Collection, or I assume it'll also probably be on the version that's on to stream. Basically just the most recent restoration. After the Universal logo with the plane going around the Earth, there's a logo for the NRA with, like, an eagle and uh, a slogan saying, We do our part. And you might, you know, in 2018, be tempted to think, This is the National Rifle Association and start to get really weirded out about why there's a National Rifle Association logo at the start of your horror movie. That's not what this is. This is a different NRA. This is the National Recovery Administration, which was a Franklin Roosevelt New Deal era organization that existed in the early 30s to promote strong unions, uh, to promote minimum wage, to promote... You know safety standards at work, to prevent unfair competition, to set minimum prices for goods, etc. etc. It was extremely popular when it was active until it was I believe ruled unconstitutional in 1935 by the Supreme Court and disbanded.
0: Why was it ruled unconstitutional?
1: Um, the courts ruled that it was an overreach on the power of the executive branch because it was an organization that Roosevelt had just willed into being via executive order and that then had, like, immense powers to, like, set all these kind of regulations on industry and economy without having to go through, like, Congress or the Senate or the judiciary. Okay. Yeah, it was very, very popular with people at the times. Uh, Businesses would put NRA logos in their windows to increase sales. Yeah. Um, that sort of thing. probably so, uh, why it would be on the front of a movie. Yes, exactly. So what did we think of this movie? This isn't the first time we've seen it. We've both seen this movie a few times. Yeah,
0: it's really cool to think about this movie in the context of the development of the horror genre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm really excited to talk about it. Um, still really enjoy it. It's, it's a really good movie.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So in terms of plot, it is very similar to the general outline of the novel. We begin with a mysterious man wrapped in bandages with sunglasses and a fedora and an overcoat arriving at an inn in a small English village in sort of the dead of winter and he's very grumpy and wants a room and everybody's speculating like who is this guy and, and what could his deal be. Within uh, no time at all, it seems, he sort of sets up like a chemistry lab in this room and starts doing experiments trying to find a way back. And in one incident, the innkeeper, uh, she bursts in on him, and he's got some of the bandages on the lower part of his face taken off so he can eat, and there's nothing there at all. And he kind of yells at her to get out of uh, the place. Meanwhile, there's sort of a parallel mystery going on with some unrelated, it seems, characters. A scientist, his daughter Flora, and his assistant Kemp. Uh, There was a second assistant, Griffin, who Flora was in love with, but he's gone missing. And nobody knows where he could have gone because he burned all his notes and left without a trace. And Flora's very distraught about it, which uh, leads Kemp to think that now is the time to make the moves on her. (laughs) uh, Which... No, Kemp. Stop. No. (laughs) Anyways, as you could probably guess, our mysterious man in the inn is Griffin, and the experiment he carried out was to make himself invisible, and he's trying to find a way to make himself visible again because it's really inconvenient being invisible. But he's not making any progress because the people of this small village keep busting in on him and disturbing his work, and he's also behind... On the rent and they want to kick him out of the inn and things kind of get to a head and the innkeepers decide to call a police officer in to forcibly evict this man and that's when he kind of goes off the deep end and he's like all right I'll show you fools and takes off all the bandages and reveals that yes he is totally invisible and goes on a rampage in the town. It's sort of funny how quickly this police officer just sort of goes, right, okay, he's invisible. Like, (laughs) accepts it very quickly.
0: But he's still a man.
1: Yes. They try to sort of phone it up to higher police authorities who don't initially believe them. They think it's just a hoax. Meanwhile, Invisible Griffin has run naked across England to Kemp's house and confronts Kemp late one night, sort of reveals who he is, what his deal is, and how everything works with the invisibility. You know, asks for some things, bandages and and the glasses and everything, so that Kemp can see him and they can interact. And once Griffin's all set up, uh, he reveals that um, he's just going to use his invisibility to, like, kill everyone and take over the world. A reign of terror. Yeah, exactly. Sort of coming to the conclusion that no one can stop him, Uh, so he'll show them kind of being a homicidal madman, Mm -hmm. but he needs Kemp's help. He needs someone who's visible to, like, get him things without suspicion and stuff. So Kemp's going to be his helper. And, I mean, Kemp isn't too happy about this, but...
0: He doesn't really have a choice. Yeah,
1: what you going to do? The problem is that in his hurry to escape from the village, Griffin left his notebooks back at the inn. So he gets Kemp to drive him back uh, and invisibly sneaks into the inn while a sort of police inquiry is happening where one of the higher-up policemen is saying this was a hoax, you have no proof. Griffin, with the help of Kemp, grabs his notebooks and, and gets them out of there and then on his way out murders that police chief, uh, so there's your proof. Uh, and they get away and now it's serious. There's an invisible man on the loose and we gotta find him and there's a reward if you call the police with any kind of useful method of getting him and, and so on.
0: It should be said that while investigating Griffin's disappearance, head scientist Dr. Cranley and Dr. Kemp discover a note in Griffin's lab that he's been using Movocaine?
1: Monocaine.
0: Monocaine. Monocaine. <laughs> And upon discovering this, Dr. Cranley explains that, hey, this drug, yeah, it'll, like, bleach your things, take all the color out, would maybe help with invisibility, but also will make you go insane.
1: Yeah, it's got a very interesting selection of properties. (laughs) It drains color from everything and causes madness. So Kemp tries to, you know, tell Griffin, like, hey, it's the drugs you're taking to make you invisible, that are making you mad. Like, all we need to do is, like, find the antidote and you'll be fine and all this. But Griffin's pretty set on this whole reign of terror business. Yeah. As I said, the the cops are trying to close in on him. One night, Kemp sort of decides that something needs to be done about this. This is an untenable situation. So he calls Cranley and asks him to come over to help him to kind of knock Griffin out, restrain him, bring him back to Cranley's place and figure out the antidote together. And then after making that call, you know, Cranley's getting to go and Flora's like, no, I must come with you. And it's worth saying that, like, Cranley's basically that, like, really bad paternalistic, like, no, daughter, you shouldn't do anything ever Mm -hmm. kind of type. And Flora's basically the same character as, like, Mina in Dracula or... Uh, Elizabeth and Frankenstein. I I swear it's, like, the same accent. Uh, But it's that kind of, like, she's really worried about Griffin, and she must go to him, and she must talk to him, and and she's hysterical all the time, and not a great character. She
0: is very headstrong.
1: Headstrong, yes. But, you know, it's not a great setup. For sure. Anyways, so Cranley and Flora are coming, because they figure, ultimately, that, like, Flora might be able to talk to Griffin and, and sort of appeal to his humanity. Kemp, though panics. Yes, and calls the police as well, uh, which was a bad call because Flora is able to calm Griffin down a little bit, although he makes a speech about how like he did it all for her so that he could be famous and wealthy, and rule the world, and therefore be able to, like, give her all the things she deserves because he was just a poor chemist. And it's like, you know, man, like, at a certain point, (laughs) maybe you didn't have to go so far as rule the world. Like, Griffin's... He's an
0: overachiever.
1: Yeah, he's full-on maniacal is what he is. But when he sees that the cops are there, uh, he ditches and escapes again. And on the way out the door, threatens to kill Kemp at 10 p.m. tomorrow. Kemp is naturally very shaken about this. He wants police protection. You know, he doesn't think there's anything the cops can really do to help him. Over the course of the next day, Griffin kills a bunch of the people who are looking for him.
0: 20 of them.
1: Yes. Uh, as well as sneaks into a switchyard along a train line, kills the switch operator, switches the uh, train tracks, and causes a train to derail and kills a 100 more people. Mm-hmm. Then, the cops have, like, an elaborate plan to, like, smuggle Kemp out of his house and into a police station and dress him up in police clothes and make him just look like another cop and then smuggle him out. But it doesn't work because Griffin's actually secretly and visibly right beside Kemp the whole (laughs) time. And when Kemp escapes in his car, Griffin just comes up from behind him, grabs him, takes over the car, undoes the parking brake, pushes the car off a cliff... With Kemp inside, the car, of course, because it's a car in a movie going off a cliff, explodes, and that's the end of Kemp. (laughs) So with Kemp dead and out of the way, Griffin doesn't have anyone to really help him anymore, and he's just kind of on the run. And the thing that, you know, the movie does a really good job of sort of keeping the invisibility believable... Like, he talks about how he can't be seen by anyone when he's eating because the food's still visible until it's digested. And how he has to be careful about being clean because dirt will show up on him and he can't go out in the rain and, or the fog. And, you know, it's, it's fairly careful about this stuff. And one of the things, that, you know, it says is, like, for him to really walk around invisible, he has to be naked. So it's, I think, supposed to be, like, late winter. Uh, Either early winter or late winter, because it snows, but the snow melts fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's either early or late winter. So he, he talks a lot about how it's freezing cold for him all the time, going around invisible. And he has to go around invisible now, because the cops are closing in. They try a few methods of catching him, none of which really work. And finally, Griffin ends up sheltered up in a barn, sleeping in the hay. He's spotted because the farmer who owns the barn, you know, sees the hay moving up and down as uh, Griffin's breathing while he's sleeping.
0: It's not so much he's spotted as he's heard.
1: Yes, it's the breathing (laughs) that's heard. And he goes back and tells the police, like, hey, he's in my barn. And just at that moment, there's also a fresh snowfall. So they think, you know, if they can get to the barn, they'll be able to spot his tracks in the snow and catch him which is basically what they do. They do light the barn on fire to force him to leave. <laughs> uh, but yes, then he comes out of the barn. They spot his tracks in the fresh snow and they shoot him a couple times. We cut to, presumably, a little bit of time later, a doctor is there with Dr. Cranley explaining that Griffin's going to die because the bullet pierced both lungs, which, like, makes me surprised that they were able to keep him alive, like, that long. Yeah. Um, But they say, like, he's going to die soon, uh, so if you want to have a tragic death scene, you better get Flora up here. (laughs) Uh, So Flora and him go in. Griffin says, like, there are things man is not meant to meddle with, and dies, and once he dies, he fades back to visibility in a really cool effect where it's, like, layered, like we see, like, the skull, and then, like, the skin, and then the hair, and the last shot of the movie is the first and only time we see Claude Rains in this whole picture.
0: Not exactly, because the Doctor's Claude Rains. The Doctor's Claude Rains?! I swear it's Claude Rains. It looks like Claude Rains. I don't
1: think so. His voice doesn't sound anything like well, him.
0: Of course he would hide his voice. But no, it looks like Claude Rains. Mm. Dressed up to be a little older, he looks like Claude Rains from Casablanca. But then the Claude Rains that's in the bed is like is like clean-shaven and young. I,
1: I feel like I would... Have spot that would have been in like my IMDb trivia research before we watched this movie. <laughs>
0: no, um, I swear it is.
1: Okay, I think we have to stop stop the podcast for a second and check this because, like, if you're right, that that's amazing. But uh, I I that can't be. wrong.
0: Okay, like, I could have sworn it was, but apparently it's this guy named Jameson Thomas who's, like, an actual actor, not just, like, a pseudonym or something. <laughs> does, like, my entire life I've been like, that's Claude Rains.
1: It uh, doesn't look... It's it so,
0: looks exactly <laughs> like Claude Rains in Casablanca.
1: Which is, like, ten years later. Yeah. I finished the plot summary, though, right?
0: Yes. Okay, yeah. he dies!
1: And then we see him at the end, and it's Claude Rains, and it's the first time anyone had ever seen him in a movie. The end. Cool. So it's a good movie.
0: It is a good movie. I have this note, and I feel like I should just kind of slightly mention it. I do appreciate the film's dedication to not showing Claude Rain's face. Mm-hmm. Like... My note says, despite the Doctor character, so that goes out the window now. But we see Flora, like, hug a picture of him when she's, like, distraught, and we don't even get to see the picture. Yes.
1: um, Yeah, I, I totally had a similar note about that, about how the story starts in Medias' race, because he's already done... he's already invisible. We don't get to see him turn invisible the first time, and that is, you know, something that not only makes the ending where he fades back to visibility work... Um, as a reveal but it also allows the movie to begin with a great sense of mystery about like who this guy is and what his deal is and
0: it kind of makes the reveal of his invisibility to us even more impactful
1: yeah absolutely if we had if you know if the movie had started with seeing him take the serum and become invisible like Jekyll and Hyde or whatever then like Who cares for the scene where the innkeeper comes in accidentally, right? It's that first shocking glimpse where he's got the bandages still on and it's just his mouth that they're off so he can eat and there's nothing there that makes you go like, holy crap, right? Another thing that's really effective is the way that the first act are these parallel mysteries between who's this guy at the inn and what happened to this missing scientist, Griffin. I mean, as an audience member, you can put two and two together, but what's nice is that It keeps all the characters equally in the dark until Griffin explains it. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, everybody learns everything at the same time.
0: Yeah, and it's not like the audience knows and like the characters don't. Which has been the case for some of these previous movies.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Like we, we all learn kind of everything together. So the pacing's very good that way. Obviously, Claude Rains is brilliant.
0: Yeah, the power in his voice to do these growls when he's really menacing, but also the offhanded ways he describes killing people. That's just kind of like, yeah, I went down to the store.
1: Yeah, like the way that he he says like, yeah, we'll have to do a reign of terror first. Uh, Kill a few people. You know, little people, big people, just to show that we don't discriminate. Like, yeah, it's just this really incredible blend of sort of a genteel elegance but also that gravelly tinge of dangerous anger so that he comes across charming yet dangerous at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's basically the same kind of trick that, like, Anthony Hopkins would use when he's doing Hannibal Lecter, you know, 60 years later or whatever, right? It doesn't hurt that Claude Rains has a fantastic maniacal laugh, too.
0: Yeah, I, I don't want this whole podcast to just be me being like, but his voice, though, <laughs> you know, so totally with you there.
1: Yeah, it's a very commanding performance. So the the movie mostly follows the novel.
0: Yeah, really the only deviation is Kemp's story is merged with that Thomas Marvel character that, mm-hmm. like no-do-gooder yeah. uh, character I mentioned, um, because Marvel goes to the police and he's insisting to be put into like a jail cell to be kept away, and Kemp goes through that storyline.
1: Yeah, I feel like the other big change is the addition of the romantic interest in Flora.
0: I believe so. I didn't see anything about that in the novel, but I haven't read it,
1: so I can't say. I suppose it is something of a mandatory requirement in a Hollywood film of this period. Probably even in a Hollywood film of now, because otherwise, how do you get an actress into this movie? Although maybe if this was done today, Flora would be Kemp, you know? And maybe still be Flora, right? But, like, you wouldn't have this extraneousness of, like, you know, his mentor character, the mentor's other assistant, and the mentor's daughter.
0: And if the mentor was the love interest, that kind of puts some weird
1: things yeah, going Yeah, it makes there. more sense to, to combine Kemp and, and Flora so that your love interest character also has something to do with the plot rather than just be crying and, and mm-hmm. w- wailing about.
0: I mean, I think the other reason why Flora exists is James Whale wanting to put star power into this to placate... Mm-hmm. the studio, mm-hmm. um, and so create this character to, like, get someone who he's, like, worked with in the past. But I think also, um, if, if Kemp and Flora's characters were merged, so Flora was playing the Kemp role, I think that would be really interesting, but Kemp works really well <laughs> as a character foil.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's um like the
0: perfect character foil to Griffin because, he is cowardly, mm-hmm. he has no ambition, mm-hmm. yeah. um, he's just kind of there, and you think he has some kind of, like, something in him when he's coming onto Flora being like, your father is so brilliant, we're making, like, food preservatives, and we save lives because of that,
1: or something yeah. along those lines.
0: But he's just kind of like, it's a perfectly fine chemist job.
1: Yeah. Like, I feel like the other main thing that Flora does is she serves to make Griffin more sympathetic. Mm-hmm. And it makes his final death more tragic because mm-hmm. there was someone who loved him, right? This is also done by the other big change to the novel, which is making the drugs the cause of his madness cuz that's not in the book.
0: And I I do have a problem with that.
1: It's an interesting thing because um it is kind of like an excuse, right? It, it It's a get-out-of-jail-free card in in a way, right? Yeah. Um, it sort of undoes what the novel was about in some ways.
0: Yeah, instead of the horror in what man is kind of capable of mm-hmm. with no consequences facing him, mm-hmm. which you, you kind of get a hint of that in Jekyll and Hyde, you kind of get a hint of that in Picture of Dorian Gray. Instead, with this movie adding in the the insanity mm-hmm. caused by the drugs, it becomes more of horror of what an insane man can do when you can't stop him.
1: Yes, absolutely. I do think there is still something to be said because the drugs make him insane, but the drugs are also the thing that makes him invisible. The mechanism of the thing that's giving him his anonymity is also the thing that's leading him to become homicidal. There's still a connection there, but I agree that the focus shifts. Yeah. And it's definitely part of the effort to make Griffin more sympathetic and more tragic. What I found really interesting is that the natural inclinations that a Hollywood adaptation would have, and that we've even seen demonstrated in Frankenstein, for example, are avoided. Kemp sort of initially seems to fill the role of the heroic, normal, alternative romance for Flora. You're left expecting that he'll eventually become the hero they'll defeat Griffin and he'll end up with Flora. That's a template that we've seen a few times already now, right? Mm -hmm. And instead, Kemp turns out to be, like you said, this cowardly nothing who dies at the end of the second act. Yeah. And then with the drugs, the other thing that you're starting to expect is that they would have that as a plot element so that an antidote could be found and then Griffin would be saved and get a romantic ending where he's he's redeemed and saved with Flora. But no, they they kill him, like in the novel. They they give him the comeuppance that Frankenstein got to weasel out of in his movie. <laughs> you know?
0: They make it so clear that like, no, he's dying. The bullet pierced both lungs. lungs. He's dying. It won't be pretty. It's going to happen quickly. I definitely see what you're saying. I wonder though if if this movie had not had the madness element Mm -hmm. to it, would there have been public backlash over it in the same way that we saw in Island of Lost Souls? Sure. Because Dr. Moreau, he's not crazy. He's just an ambitious scientist.
1: He's just immoral.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, it it lets them narratively get a bit off the hook Mm -hmm. because it's not quite as terrifying. Like, it's still scary for sure, but it becomes this idea that, oh, he's only like this because he took these drugs, so you don't have that underlying fear of, you know, the fear in Moreau is, like, what happens if, you know, immoral people gain too much power, Mm. right? And here, we don't really have to be afraid. As long as we catch Griffin, we're fine, because he's only crazy because he took these drugs.
0: Exactly, yeah. I mean, the madness adds, like, an amazing part of... Claude Raines's performance, and you can kind of see that in just a single scene of when Flora sees him when he's invisible, mm-hmm. like at Kemp's house, where he goes from being like probably the way Jack was before the serum mm-hmm. to going off the rails.
1: Yeah, he really is so off the deep end, right?
0: Yeah. Speaking of off the deep end, I do appreciate the humor and the often dark humor yeah. in this movie. But I think it's to the film's detriment that they go to the point of uh, zaniness hmm. in Griffin's madness hmm. rather than just reign of terror, you fools. Interesting. Like I- when he's like in the <laughs> pants, skipping down the down the road.
1: I would disagree. Okay. Um, it is a valid criticism. I think it's one of those subjective things about where your tolerance or limit. Or personal tastes for that sort of humor come into play hmm. right I really admire the way this movie handles its tone once the mystery portion is over you get into the second act which is where you have a lot of that zaniness you know he's pulling pranks on the villagers and there's a lot of you know the thing about this innkeeper um, she's the character played by Una O'Connor and she's way over the top as a comedic character right the thing about it is I feel like the role it's serving in the movie is Griffin is perhaps the most murderous villain in a universal horror movie we've seen so far. Certainly the most murderous on screen. You know, um, he kills probably a good 130 people at least. We see him strangle several people on camera. A lot of the murders that even, like, Dracula did were, you know, it would we'd fade. cut away. Yeah, we'd cut away. It would fade to black. Frankenstein's monster doesn't really kill many people at all. He throws Maria in the river. The only comparable one I can think of
0: is the guy in Murders in the Zoo.
1: Right. Well, in Murders in the Zoo, it's still, in terms of on screen, it's still less people. It's about, I want to say it's like three people. And an attempted fourth. And, you know, we see all of those on screen, which makes them very shocking and powerful. But yeah, like, Griffin's like a domestic terrorist, right? Like, he's blowing up trains and shit. Yeah. So I feel like the comedy is there to balance that out. I also think it's likely why he dies at the end, Mm -hmm. right? Why he doesn't get the reprieve that Frankenstein got. Because ultimately, Griffin crosses a line at a certain point where it's like, he kind of needs to die, and I think, I think this is the, also why the comedy is so strong, in, in that middle portion especially. Once the mystery's kind of over, but before we're headed into the third act. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, like the, the humor is fine. It's really just when Griffin himself goes too far into zaniness, it's just kind of like a, yeah, okay. Like, I see why it's here, but I'm not really a fan of this part.
1: The thing that interests me about it is that 1933 is seven years before we'll get the Joker in a Batman comic. Like, Fair. like this kind of homicidal maniac who is somehow still kind of uh, likable and has this kind of charm to him and regards death and murder with a kind of laughing, humorous sensibility, isn't as much of a stock character yet. I don't think.
0: That's very true. That's a really good point.
1: Um, so you know, it's it's something where like he he you know. Claude Rains could have been the Joker, you know, based on this performance, right? Yeah. Speaking of the humor, the version of England that this story takes place in. (laughs) So the director and the writer are both from England, but this feels like they're parodying their homeland.
0: A little bit. The, The way the cops are.
1: Yeah, they're like bumbling, but like stiff upper lip right yeah like they, they they are totally they're very ineffectual they don't get you know much done they're comic relief, but they're also like very put together you know the first cop who goes to confront griffin uh you know he takes off his his uh bandages it's the big reveal of the movie where we see he's invisible for the first time and everyone in the audience is totally shocked and the the, the cop just kind of leaves the room and says turns to the two guys who are with him and is like all right he's invisible but uh we can still catch him you know it's like he's so like <laughs> calm about like right okay he's invisible but, like, you know, then you have the the very quaint country villagers and this, you know, I feel like the first three minutes of the movie are just, like, this slice of life of the most English pub <laughs> ever. Like, oh, there's the guys playing darts and the guy at the piano and, like, they're having beer. Like... You know what that pub
0: reminds me of? That pub in American, American Werewolf, Werewolf in, in London. London.
1: Yeah, it's the exact same shit, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's, you know, the English pub. It feels like it's, it's sort of ribbing a sort of image of England, in a way. I do think the filmmakers make two very good choices about the comedy. Sure. So first, it's limited to ancillary characters, right? It's the innkeepers, it's the cops, it's the villagers. It's none of the principals, right? Kemp isn't a comic relief character. Uh, Griffin is funny, but he's not a comic relief character.
0: You're saying we would be horrified at the zaniness.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like he's, or, or like, he's funny in the way that a villain can be funny, right? Dark humor. Uh, dark humor. You know, he's chasing, like, even that scene that you're talking about where he's skipping down the road, like, he's chasing someone who's running from him screaming while he's doing that, right? So, you know, he's not slipping on banana peels and, like, a, a xylophone's going, Groop! Like, um, <laughs> he's not a joke. Yeah. Griffin isn't a joke, right? The innkeeper, she's a joke. Yeah. The cop, he's a joke. So it's, it's limited to these ancillary characters. The second thing they do really well is it sort of fades away as the running time goes on. As we head into the third act, you're largely devoid of it. The film gets more serious as it goes. The first act's kind of mystery. The second act's kind of playing with humor, inherent in an invisible man which I think is almost natural like you almost have to let the audience get their laughs out of it first because it is kind of funny before they can start being afraid of it right and then you get to the third act and he's blowing up trains and murdering people and they're confronting him in the barn and stuff right
0: yeah I would agree with all of that
1: okay the invisible man what what really strikes me about it is that it feels prescient as a movie in a way okay um first in its use of special effects as main attraction spectacle. You know, you're here to see them pull off, making a man invisible. You will believe a man can't be seen, you know? <laughs> is um, that
0: a tagline?
1: Well, it's the, the tagline for Superman is, you'll believe a man can fly.
0: Oh. <laughs> um,
1: and this is sort of a trait that it shares with King Kong, mm. which came out the same year, you know, and King Kong's really seen as the first big special effects spectacle movie, right? This sort of becomes what movies are from that point on, is like, you know, like I just said, Superman. The, the attraction is, can they get this guy to fly, right? Special effects as being part of the reason to go see a movie, not just part of, you know, the necessities of movie making. The train thing in this movie is an example, like that's a miniature Mm -hmm. Um, scene, but like an audience at the time wouldn't have thought of it. A lot of audiences might have just thought they blew up a real train because nobody knew how miniatures worked. But that wouldn't be like a a reason to go see the movie, you know? No one's saying, go see the movie for the train explosion. They're saying, go see it because there's an invisible dude. The other thing is, and we we sort of already touched on this, so I won't go into it too much, but it's depiction of Griffin as this likable homicidal madman. Mm -hmm. That's a character type that, you know, dominates things now. I don't think you... Get to the Joker without that, or as I said earlier, even Hannibal Lecter, right? Yeah. The other thing I think is really prescient about this movie that you know this movie could not have seen coming at all is its exploration of the terrors of anonymity.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And this is the thing you said you thought was kind of diluted from the novel because of the drug, and I, I I think that's fair. I think the novel probably explores it stronger because it doesn't have that easy out, but it's still here in this movie. And the thing that struck me watching it was, you know, when this movie was made, its premise was pure science fiction. And while today we still cannot make a man invisible, what really gives Griffin his terrible power isn't so much the fact that light passes through him as it is his anonymity, that he can go anywhere and do anything and no one can stop him because they don't know where he is and they don't know who he is, Mm -hmm. right? So he is in many ways representative, I think, of the same kind of threats and fears as, like, your modern cyber criminal who can operate from the anonymity of their computer screen, uh, you know, and cause fear, terror, mayhem, and death simply because they can because without, you know, identity, morality just kind of fades away like you're invisible.
0: I definitely see what you're saying, and I agree. Um, I don't think you even need to limit it to online anonymity, because we see the terrorism happening around the world. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like, you see it in these people being radicalized, um, and they could be your next-door neighbors, and they go out and do horrific, seemingly random acts of violence, Mm -hmm. and you did not see it coming.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's always sort of been the fear of the anonymous criminal, you know, no one knew who Jack the Ripper was, right? Nobody knew who killed the Black Dahlia. I I think the reason why it came to me with the internet was because what a wide array of things anonymity allows you to do on the internet from, you know, really extreme things like murder and terrorism and that sort of thing, but also even the stuff of, like, you know, the bullying and the trolling and stuff, because... To me, so much of Griffin's personality, as shown in the movie, speaks to that. It's the fact that anonymity lets you be a prankster as much as it lets you be a murderer, right? And it makes, and it's to him, it's the same deal, right? Mm-hmm. Murdering someone is just the same thing as stealing, stealing someone's bike, exactly, right? Like I, I think of the 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 incident that happened recently in the states with um, the guy who got killed by the police because some guy who was angry at him on Call of Duty phone the cops on him. Swatting. Yeah, exactly. You know, that sort of thing. Or um, the way that You know, people can follow you around online from account to account to account and continue harassing you, and you don't know who they are, and you can ban them or block them or whatever, and they just can start up another account and start harassing you again. You know, they're this amorphous thing that you can't see that isn't really there. And I'm sure the studies have been done that, you know, your psychology changes because, well, that's not really me, right? I'm going to, when I close the computer, I'm going to leave the house and go to work and be a normal person Mm. or whatever, right? There's something about the way that Griffin realizes that, oh, you know, nobody knows who I am, nobody can see me, nobody can track me down, I can do anything that really rings true to me with the way that people act online.
0: I think you're onto something, and you could even point to Griffin's entitlement
1: Yeah, for sure. Like, he just thinks that he should be allowed to rule the world because he's brilliant enough to have come up with invisibility, right? Which is, like, madness, you Mm. know? And the fact that he thinks that he can do it, that he's like, yeah, naturally, I'm going to rule the world. It's like, what? How did he think that was going to work? Like, did he think, like, if he just marched into Buckingham Palace and, like, killed uh, the king of England and, like, took his crown and put it on his invisible head that, like, he'd just be the king now? Like, how did he think he was going to do that? I don't know how monarchy works. I mean, I mean, I do, and it doesn't work like that.
0: <laughs> but, like, the entitlement that you see of these online accounts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you're, I think you're really onto something.
1: What's interesting to me is, like, this isn't a movie about the internet, obviously. It's from <laughs> 1933, right? Yeah. This movie's about a hypothetical philosophical question. Just the same way the book was, just the same way that... Plato's um, Republic. Exactly. It was just a a hypothetical question of like, hey, if you took away people's identity, would they still be moral? What's striking is that we live in a world today where that's no longer a hypothetical. That's our day-to-day, day-in, day-out existence. Is if if people are anonymous, do they still act in moral ways? And the answer is no, they don't.
0: I don't think the answer to that question is as cut and dry, because I don't, you know? There have been cases where I've been anonymous online. Like, obviously, like, we've all been there. Mm-hmm. And, like, I don't do those things. Like, I don't... I'm not mean to people. I can't be mean to
1: people. <laughs> I think maybe the more accurate way to put it, then, is what this movie guesses at and depicts well is the psychology of the type of person who would. Yeah. That's there the, we go. That's the thing, is is it is it accurately depicts the kind of person who, if you took away their anonymity, would become a monster, it's this kind of person, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's you know, that there are, there's a certain type of person who is going to be that way.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry to, like, prod you on, like, the blanket statement of no. No, no, but, absolutely.
1: Like... You were f- totally fair to do so, okay. right? But, yeah, I think I think... Ultimately, that's what strikes me the most about this movie, is that it's a film that's gone from being hypothetical to being reality. Yeah. Even if we can't make people invisible. (laughs) Let's
0: take a deep breath after that discussion. Whew. Where are you thinking?
1: Uh, I'm thinking bottom half of the top ten. That's that's, that's my range. It's five to ten. I wanted to... Give the option that this could be considered better than Frankenstein, so I started there at number five, and then I got down to Phantom of the Opera. I think that this is definitely better than Phantom of the Opera, because I feel like, in some ways, Griffin and Eric have some similarities. They're brilliant, maniacal, homicidal madmen who hide behind anonymity. This film did a better job of depicting Griffin than Phantom did with Eric, because in Phantom, Eric is still a little bit of a, you know, a two-dimensional pulp story villain in There's some a ways. lot
0: going on in Phantom.
1: There's a lot going on in Phantom, for sure. But yeah, I think, I think Invisible Man is a better character uh, analysis. Sure. So that's sort of how I figured on my range.
0: My range is exactly the same. Okay. I wasn't sure whether this was better than Frankenstein or not. Mm-hmm. I felt it was definitely better than Phantom. Honestly, like, I wrote down 5 to 10, but I feel like we can just straight up put this above Nosferatu and Caligari.
1: See, I wasn't 100% sure on that, mainly because I wanted to check in with you because of the zany humor stuff. Because of the fact that this movie does undercut itself a little bit. And, you know, as I said, I think it's a necessary undercutting, but it's an undercutting that, like, Caligari and Nosferatu don't really do. So I, that's why I wasn't sure there, Um, but I did have the same thought for sure.
0: Yeah, I was thinking of the way that it depicts its horror and I was thinking about that both in the sense of like, would this have been scarier or had more public pushback had the madness not been there? Mm -hmm. And then after discussing with you, I feel like the only reason that we would maybe not put this above Caligari or Nosferatu is Caligari and Nosferatu being so iconic. Invisible Man, pretty dang iconic. Yeah,
1: that's true. But
0: how do you compare that to Cesare
1: and Caligari? Honestly, I think if you put Orlok, the Invisible Man, and Cesare in a lineup and showed them to like a 16 year old, I feel like they'd probably get who the Invisible Man or even Orlok were before they'd get Cesare. Yeah. You know, they'd look at that lineup and they'd be like, oh, that's uh, the vampire from What We Do in the Shadows. Oh, that's Johnny Depp when he was young. I was gonna say goth kid. Yeah. And, oh, that's um, the mummy with sunglasses. <laughs>
0: <laughs> sure. So the reason why I wasn't sure between 5, 6, and 7
1: mm-hmm.
0: is because 7, Murders in the Zoo, is... Yes, there's less murders <laughs> in the sense of what...
1: Pure numbers.
0: Yeah, pure numbers goes to Invisible Man. But the way that Murders in the Zoo doesn't cutaway and actually like stays with you know the wife being dropped into the alligator pit
1: it's quality versus quantity yeah the the murders in murders in the zoo are maybe not realistic quote unquote what's realistic in murders in the zoo is the human emotional motivation that those uh murders come from you know jealousy pride arrogance
0: invisible man follows that H.G. Wells' rule, I guess, Mm -hmm. uh, even in this adaptation and even adding the madness that, like, everything that follows after that fantastic assumption is real. Mm -hmm. I I just, it resonates more in Murders in the Zoo for me.
1: I mean, there's nothing fantastic in Murders in the Zoo, really. Like, the fantastic assumption is just that this murderous guy has access to all these animals.
0: Uh, I suppose what I mean, then, is that, like, the realness of that horror resonates more for me in Murders in the Zoo than it does in Invisible Man.
1: Where I get into trouble is like, I think this might be better than Frankenstein. I totally see all your points about why Murders in the Zoo is better, but I also think this is better than Frankenstein. (laughs) Because I feel like it's a better adaptation of its source material, its story is much clearer uh in terms of you know whose side we should be on what the themes are where our sympathies should lie you know it doesn't let griffin off the hook at the end like frankenstein does i think also the filmmaking craft on display in invisible man is superior like obviously james whale has learned a few things in two years but like there's some filmmaking stuff like not just the effects which are incredible but like the way this movie has some montage edits and and things like that to to show the way everyone's running around trying to find the guy. You know, I just think this is a better movie than Frankenstein. And this is a, a difficult loop that we're in in this section of the list, I think. Yeah. But ultimately we ended up putting Murders in the Zoo lower because we didn't feel like it had really like that iconic sort of hitting power to go up against Frankenstein and Dracula, which I think is what's immediately above it.
0: Yeah, in terms of iconic power... Invisible Man would go above Murders in the Zoo. I think part of the other reason why Murders in the Zoo went a little lower is it's very, like, to the point, whereas Frankenstein and a little bit Dracula, there's more stuff to chew on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that was something we talked about with Frankenstein versus Island of Lost Souls, was there was a lot going on in Frankenstein, whereas Island of Lost Souls was much clearer. And
0: I feel like Invisible Man is clearer while also having stuff
1: to chew on. Mm -hmm. I think that, yeah, I I would agree with that. I think what's interesting about Invisible Man and Murders in the Zoo is that they both present villains who are of a type that's still recognizable to us today in a way that Frankenstein really doesn't. Yeah. Um, I don't know as like, what we're afraid of in Frankenstein, you know, in terms of the scientist who goes too far, is like, like, that feels like such a fear that people had in the 30s. And maybe it was justified because 10 years later you have the atom bomb. But, like, nowadays I don't feel that fear. I'm not afraid of scientists. I am afraid of people who think that they are entitled to do whatever they want and can get away with it.
0: Yeah, I'm definitely more in favor of Scientist
1: as Hero. Sure. I I could put it in either place. I literally, I could put it below Murders in the Zoo and be happy, and I could put it above Frankenstein and be happy, and below Island of Lost Souls, ironically, the other H.G. Wells movie.
0: (laughs) Okay, if we just look at, like, construction and maintenance of tone Mm -hmm. in a horror film, Mm -hmm. Murders in the Zoo definitely gets that. In my opinion. I know you, you felt differently about the humor, but mm-hmm. whatever. It's below anyways. Frankenstein, it wobbles. Here, it's not as wobbly.
1: Yeah, I the thing about this movie is there's a lot of tone shifts in this movie from different tones, but I think the transitions between them, the the arc of those tone shifts is handled well. You know, it's a it's a development of you know, mystery to humor to horror Mm -hmm. to tragedy on, like, a through line that you can follow. Whereas Frankenstein's a bit more patchwork and... For me, at least anyways, Murders in the Zoo occasionally feels like a light switch being turned on and off between like, holy crap, what did I just see? And oh, now we're laughing at the funny man again. Like, And I see why it's there and and I get why you needed it for that relief, but it did feel jarring to me. The shifts sometimes in a way that the tone shifts in this movie never felt jarring. This movie feels mm-hmm. like it's it's one thing from beginning to end.
0: Okay. So, for its maintenance and construction of tone, the quality of its adaptation, Mm -hmm. um, and its iconic nature, as well as its prescience for the current day, I would be comfortable with putting Invisible Man above Frankenstein, so hitting at number five.
1: All right, then I think that's where it's going. So entering the list at number five, Below Island of Lost Souls, also based on an H.G. Wells book, (laughs) and Above Frankenstein, also directed by James Whale, so there's a nice little... Continuum there. (laughs) Uh, The Invisible Man from 1933.
0: I feel like that's like a good Venn diagram. Right. Like on one is Island, on the other is Frankenstein, and in the middle, Invisible Man.
1: Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Yeah.
0: If you would like to see this list sans Venn diagram. Mm -hmm. You can check out our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There are links to other episodes in the list, so feel free to check out the other episodes to see how they got ranked where they are. On our website is also an appeal box where you can submit appeals, but also concerns, questions, and even suggestions for the show. You can also email us at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com or chat with us on Twitter at
1: underscore ScreamScene. ScreamScene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud and iTunes. You can also get us on any podcasting app using the RSS feed. If you leave us a review on iTunes, it helps other people see the show. If you leave us a comment on SoundCloud, we really appreciate it. It gives us
0: warm fuzzies.
1: It's always good to get feedback. Uh, we'd love to hear from you.
0: What are we watching next week, Ben?
1: Next week, we are watching House of Mystery. It's our first film from 1934. It's directed by some guy named William Nye. Bill Nye? <laughs> uh, and it's made by a company called Monogram Pictures, a Poverty Row studio. A Poverty Row picture? Yeah. In the horror genre? Mm hmm. That's Nye Impossible! Oh, ho, 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 ho! Uh, I mean, it's in fact very common, but, you know.
0: (laughs) Well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.